All right, I want to just apologize. We're doing a thing on the Bible. How many of y'all brought your Bibles tonight? All right. Did anybody bring another translation of the Bible with them tonight? Oh, we got a few that did. Okay, besides the reign of Valera. <laughs> I did ask him, which one did he bring? Did he bring the Antigua or the uh, 1960? He brought the 1960. And uh, we don't have time to deal with the Spanish versions, so we're not going to do that. That'll be another hour. So um, we're not going to do that. At the moment, my Bible's not up here. I've got my helper, Blaine, who's going to come up here in a minute. Not yet, but in a minute. And he's going to... I wanted to make sure some of y'all actually understood what I was talking about, about the verses missing. I have a four-translation Bible with me. It's got the King James Bible, the New International Version, the New Living Translation, and the New American Standard. And I'm going to ask him to look up a couple of verses in those Bibles just to show you some of the issues that we have with it. Um, just brushing up, I want to remind you something before we get into this. Number one, we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. Now, those words verbal plenary, they're big words, and what they simply mean, it, what it simply means is this. We believe that every word in the Bible is inspired by God. Amen. Every word. Okay? Now, along with inspiration, we believe this about preservation. That every word that God has inspired, He preserves. Every word that God has inspired, He preserves. And not only does He preserve it for our time, okay, we're not just the privileged ones that receive the Word of God. He preserves it so that every generation, and we've shown this from the Bible on the first week that we did this, every generation has access to a copy of the Scriptures. Every generation. And um, so that means that the Bibles that we have, if it's preserved and inspired by God, it has to come from a line that has been accessible to every generation. Now we're going to talk about the critical versions and the King James. People say there's problems with the King James. I'm going to bring up some of the major things they talk about is about being trouble spots with the King James. And I'm going to explain why the King James is correct and how they have translated or what they have put in their Bible. So we're going to go ahead and start. Please forgive me for not having my Bible up here. I have the Bible verses that we'll be looking at up on the wall, so I can at least look at that at the time. Is this thing on? We may have to, you may have to help me then, Brother Cody, because this thing is not clicking. There we go, okay. First, how many English translations are there? It's a good question. Um, a man by the name of David Daniel, who has studied the English translation of the Bible, had, um, had said this, if we include whole Bibles... New Testaments, and some single books like the Psalms, the 20th century saw about 1,500 new translations from Greek and Hebrew into English. I want you to think about that. Now, when we talk about new translations, usually we're just thinking about like the New International, the New American Standard, so on and so forth. But over the 20th century, that 100-year period from 1901 to 2000, there were about 1,500 new translations of Scripture from the Greek and Hebrew into English. Now, why has that happened? Some of it is some people's desire just to put the Bible into modern language. But in the later half of the 20th century, the issue has fallen into this. Um, printing just a Bible and, and selling it is not a big money-making scheme. Yes, the Bible is the number one bestseller of all time. In fact, the Bible is the number one bestseller every year. I mean, it's never not been the bestseller. It is it's a book that will never be overtaken in that respect. However, 
publishing houses don't make a lot of money just printing a Bible. Where they make their money is with study Bibles. Now you can buy a copy of an NIV. If you look in the right places, a New Testament or a Bible, you look in the right place, you can find a cheap copy probably for three or four bucks. Has anybody recently bought a study Bible? Anybody recently bought a study Bible? When's the last time you saw a three or four dollar study Bible? Most study Bibles are 50, 60, 100, $125, some of them even. That's where they make their money. And the problem is, most of these new study Bibles, they want to come out with a translation, new translation. They don't like to use the, the King James Bible. They want to use a new translation. But let's say that Tyndale wants to print a study Bible. They print a study Bible and they want to get a new translation, so maybe they go after the NIV. Well, they have a problem. The publishing house for the NIV is Zondervan. They have the rights to the Bible. They have the copyright privileges to that Bible. In order for them to use the NIV translation in their study Bible, the Tyndale publishers would have to pay a royalty fee to Zondervan for the use of their translation for every Bible they publish. Does that make sense to you? Because they have the copyright to it. Tyndale does not want to pay Zondervan for the use of the NIV. So what do they do? They come out with their own translation. What is their translation? The New Living Translation. And in order to do that, it has to be at least 10% difference from the NIV or any other translation for it to be something that they can copyright and use without somebody saying it's infringing on their translation work. And they do that, these new translations, for the most part, to avoid the royalty fees so that they can make as much money as they can off those study Bibles. So when we see a glut of new translations, there's no need. Hey, if they wanted to just put out one of them, why do they have to put out two within ten years of each other? Has English changed that much that we have to modernize the language again over ten years? The main reason is so that they can optimize as much profit as they can off the printing of study Bibles and other publications that would use it. That's an issue. Now the King James, of course, is not copyrighted. It's public domain. People will throw that against all of them, but understand the King James Bible wasn't printed during a time of copyrights. So um, I don't know what they would have done back in 1611 if they did. So I don't like to use that argument, but I want you to understand with modern translations, the glut of modern translations that we see today is an outgrowth of trying to profit as much as these publishing houses can. Let's go a little bit further. Now, I can't go through every different translation, so I'm going to kind of reduce the number of trans modern translations we're looking at to the most popular. Here are the top um, Bible versions used in the year 2014. I have been trying to find another poll, more recent, but I haven't been able to find one yet. Number one, the most used English translation of the Bible in the United States and in the world is the King James Bible. Does that surprise you? With everything you hear today, with modern translations, all the different preachers on TV using different translations, aren't you surprised to hear that the King James is the most used translation in the world? Notice the overwhelming majority. 55% of all people say that they read or they do their devotions or they have in their house a King James Bible that they use. Those Christians that actually use their Bible. 55%. What's number two? The NIV at 19%, followed by the New Revised Standard Version at 7 followed by the New American Bible, that's a Catholic translation at 6%, the Living Bible 
at 5%. Some of you all may remember the old Living Bible paraphrase. All other translations make up the last 8%. The King James Bible is still the most used translation, English translation in the world today, no matter what advertisers want to tell you. However, you hear this one all the time. What is the top Bible version sold in the United States? And the top Bible version sold is the New International Version, which was put out in 1978. Followed by number two, most sold, King James Bible, printed in 1611, published in 1611. The New Living Translation is number three, published in 1996. The English Standard Version, which came out in 2001, is number four. And the New King James Version, which came out in 1982, is number five. Now, for sake of time, since we can't go through all the translations, I'm going to stick with these five versions since they're the most sold and most readily available in sales today. Now, why, is the New International has, why does the New International have more sales than the King James? Well, probably the best answer is this. Most people who have a King James Bible are not going out every year trying to buy a new one. We try to keep them. How many of us have a Bible with us that we've had for at least a year? Anybody in here? See that? We usually hold on to our Bibles. We're not trying to buy new Bibles all the time. Second, King James Bibles, since they're public domain, many times people who get Bibles, they don't buy them, they're given them. Prison ministries, like the Rock of Ages prison ministry, prints Bibles to give to them. Bearing precious seed, prints Bibles to hand them out. Now I know the Gideons don't just give out King James Bibles, but they do give out King James New Testaments. How many of y'all, when y'all were in school, got a Gideon's New Testament? Anybody still around that got one of those? I know they don't do it anymore, but I remember receiving those when I was a kid. King James Bible, it's given away a lot of times. These are the reasons why in sales, even though it's only used by less than 20% of the English-speaking world, the NIV has more sales than the King James, which is used by over half of everyone in the English-speaking world. Here's something just to consider. Now, we know that the King James Bible was translated from what we call the Texas Receptus. That comes from the majority text family, and we discussed that um, last week. The modern translations come from something called the critical text, which did not exist until the 19th century, the second half of the 19th century. A man by the name of Jasper Ray compared 45 versions against 162 test scriptures to see how many times these versions departed from the Texas Receptus. And let me just show you these. The Douay version, the old Catholic English translation of the Bible, um, it was um, translated from the Latin Vulgate. It differed 75 times out of the 162 test, um, test verses. I'm not going to go through all of these, but let me just show you some of the highlights. The Living New Testament, 114 out of 162. We go down to the American Standard Version. It differed 135 times out of 162. Hey, look at this. The New World Translation. Some of you may know what the New World Translation is. That is not a real translation. That is a mistranslation of the Bible by the Jehovah's Witnesses to back their false doctrine. The New World Translation differed from the Texas Receptus 145 out of 162 test verses. Which one came in last place? The NIV. It differed 160 times from, uh, from 162 test verses. Now understand... As I've shown you through the history last week, the Texas Receptus, being part of the majority text family,
from the Byzantine text family, which had been in continual use from the very beginning of the church. That text is what we base our preserved text upon. The critical text did not come into existence until the second half of the 1800s. The second half of the 1800s. It's not even 200 years old, the critical text. Understand that the Texas Receptus and the majority text family that it comes through holds the preserved Word of God. And that's what we believe that every English translation and every translation of the world should be translated from. Let me show you why. Now, I'm going to ask Brother Blaine, if he would, to come on up and bring my Bible. It's bad for a preacher not to have a Bible. We're going to start with Acts chapter number 8, verse 37. If you have another translation of the Bible, I want you to look it up. I don't want you all to say anything, but I'm going to have him look it up. Here's Acts 8.37 in the King James Bible. This is a very important verse. This is the key verse in teaching that we do not teaching against baptismal regeneration that teaches believers' baptism, that babies shouldn't be baptized, but that people who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior are the ones who are qualified to be baptized. The Ethiopian eunuch asked in verse 36, What doth hinder me to be baptized? Philip answered and said this, And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he, the Ethiopian eunuch, answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, Blaine, would you read Acts 8.37 in the NIV? No, sir. Why can't you read it? It's not there. It's not in it? No, sir. We'll read it in the New Living Translation. Oh, let's see. Verse 36. And then goes to verse 38. Can't read it there either. The entire verse is missing. And maybe if you have one of those translations, you see that as well in your, your Bible. They omit it in the NIV, the English Standard Version, and the New Living Translation. It's completely missing. The NIV and the New Living Translation are honest. They just completely skip it. It goes from verse 36 to verse 38, leaving out that verse. The Ethiopian eunuch asks, Hey, what doth hinder me to be baptized? What does the NIV say in verse 38? In verse 38. Mm-hmm. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went, un- went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. No statement of faith in Jesus Christ. He just said, what's stopping me from being baptized? He's not made any decision for Jesus Christ yet. According to the verse, he just goes down and gets baptized. Do you see how important that verse is? It should not be missing, yet it's completely missing from the text. Let's look at another one. John 5, 4. Now, some of you may say this isn't a big deal verse. The question is this. If this is a piece of inspired Scripture, it doesn't matter if it's something important like a key text for a a verse for doctrine, if it's a single word like the or a. Every word that God inspires, God preserves. And if He's lost 1% of the Bible, that means He's not really doing the work. Wouldn't you agree? If God does something, He does it well, correct? When it comes to the preservation of the saints, how many of us again would be confident if Jesus Christ had said, I promise to make sure that 98% of people who trust in me will get to heaven? 98%, that's pretty good, right? Wouldn't you worry if you were one of the 2% that wasn't going to make it? You see, preservation, if it's done by God, has to be complete. Has to be perfect. So let's look at this verse, John 5, 4. 
The Bible says, For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stopped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. Now, we know what this is the story about, about the, the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda. Jesus goes and heals him because he wasn't able to get in to the pool first when the water was disturbed. What does the NIV say at verse 4? Uh, nothing. Is the verse there? No, sir. Goes Can you read it in the New Living Translation? Verse 3 and then verse 5. No, sir. The verse is completely missing. Is that a problem? Is that a problem? I think it is. Thank you, Brother Blaine. Please leave my Bible. Thank you very much. We see these complete verses are just omitted from our Bible. That should disturb some people. And that's not the only two that's missing. Let's, before I get into all the verses that are missing, let me show you some other things that are troubling in translations, okay? These modern translations. If you have a Bible, turn to the book of Luke, chapter number 2, verse 33. Luke chapter number 2, verse 33. In this passage of Scripture, we have Jesus, when He was 12 years old, going to the temple. We know the story of Jesus speaking with the lawyers, speaking with the priests, speaking with the Pharisees, when He was 12, over the law and the Scriptures. We know this story. How that Mary and Joseph had lost Him. They got worried. They went looking for Him, and He was missing for three days. We remember that as well. In verse 33, the King James Bible translates the verse this way. And it reads, And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Now if you notice the highlighted portion there, I want you all to know that in the Greek Texas Receptus that the King James Bible was translated from, it reads in the Greek, literally, it has the name in Greek, Joseph, spelled out. Joseph and his mother. I want you all to make sure you understand that. In the Texas Receptus, the Greek text, it reads, spelled out, Joseph and his mother in Greek. Now look how the NIV translates it. If you have an NIV, just read along, I mean, not read along, but look along with me. It says, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Is that a problem? What's the problem? Joseph wasn't Jesus' father. Notice how in the Greek text, I told you Joseph's name was spelled out. In Greek letters, Joseph. Why did they do that? To make sure people did not misunderstand that Joseph was Jesus' father. Who was Jesus' father? God. Well, let's see if the NIV was the only one. English Standard Version. Supposed to be the successor to the King James Bible for modern times, actually. Reads this way. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. What does the New Living Translation read? Jesus' parents were amazed at what was said about Him. This is a problem if somebody wants to argue against the virgin birth. That is a good text verse if you want to take it out of the modern translations to argue against Jesus being born of a virgin. If Jesus' father was Joseph, that teaches that Mary wasn't a virgin. Jesus' birth was not miraculous. And that Jesus wasn't the Son of God. Problem verse there. Let's keep going. John 3.36. John the Baptist speaking. Sometimes we think in John chapter number 3, Jesus is talking the whole time. This is John the Baptist speaking in John 3.36. He said this in John 3.36 in the King James. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. 
And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Do you all understand what he's saying there? Hey, how do you receive everlasting life? What is, what's the word? Believe, correct? Hey, how do you not receive everlasting life? Don't believe, correct? If you don't believe, you don't have everlasting life. If you do believe, you have everlasting life. What does the English Standard Version teach? This is what it says in John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Is there a problem there? Yes. What does John 3.36 teach? According to the English Standard Version, it teaches a works-based salvation. If you do not obey, you do not have everlasting life. got a question for the Christians in here. If you've been saved more than one year, i got a question for you. Has there ever been a day when you were not obeying God? Has there ever been a day, though, that you quit believing in God? No. There's a problem with that. Was the English Standard Version the only one? Let's look at the New Living Translation. It says, And anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. Let's keep going. 1 Timothy 3.16 You know, I've always said a good series, if somebody wanted to do one, a preacher wanted to do a series, would be a good study of the 3.16s of the Bible. John 3.16 ain't the only great 3.16 in the Bible. If you went through and looked up the 3.16s, you will find powerful verses that would make great sermons if you ever wanted to do a series on it. Let's look at 1 Timothy 3.16 And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the Spirit, justified in the Spirit. I mean, God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Amen. That's a good verse, wouldn't you agree? Notice the highlighted portion right there. God was manifest in the flesh. Look right here in English Standard Version. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. You see the difference. One says God. One leaves out God. Now some people would say, oh, what's the big deal? We understand the passage to mean God. But if the text actually says God, why leave it out of the verse? It takes away the authority and the power of the Scripture. The NIV, notice how it puts it. Can I just read the highlighted portion? We know what the verse says. It says, He appeared in the flesh. Not God was manifested in the flesh. Micah 5.2 Great verse. Great messianic prophecy from the Old Testament. We know this verse. But thou Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that, I mean, he that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Notice the highlighted portion there. What does the King James Bible teach in that verse? What does the actual Scripture say? Hey, according to Micah 5.2 in the King James Bible, does Jesus have a beginning? No. It says His goings forth have been from of old. In other words, you keep going back and guess what you find? You find Jesus. You go all the way back to the beginning. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. Jesus. 
When the beginning began, Jesus was already there. He has no beginning. And by the way, He's been from of old. He's from everlasting. He even goes beyond time. Jesus is not just eternal going towards the future. Jesus is also eternal going to the past. He had no beginning and He will have no end. Why? Because He's God. That's good doctrine right there, wouldn't you agree? Now look at the NIV Bible, how it translates this verse. But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from a bold from ancient times. That's a big difference, wouldn't you agree? What does the word origin mean? Beginning. Your beginning is from old, from of old, from ancient times. Jesus isn't just a really old person. He is a, an eternal being. He is an eternal being. And the NIV takes away that key aspect of His deity. The fact that Jesus has always been in existence. By the way, cults argue against Jesus being an eternal being. Do you realize that the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus Christ is not the Son of God, but Michael the Archangel? When He's in heaven, He's Michael the Archangel. When He was on earth, He was Jesus Christ. He was an angel and thus a created being. He was, yes, the first created being, because the Bible says the firstborn of creation according to the Jehovah's Witnesses, but yes, He was a created being. The problem is, though, the Bible said Jesus Christ created everything. If He's a created being, how could He have created Himself? False doctrine. Hey, the Mormons teach that Jesus was a created being. He was offspring of who they call God the Father, the Heavenly Father, or Elohim is His name, and the Heavenly Mother. They bore two sons at least, one of whom was named Jesus, the other one was named Lucifer. Did you know according to the Mormons, Jesus and the devil are brothers? They had a beginning. But the Bible teaches Jesus Christ is an eternal being. That's a problem. All right, the NIV, the New Living Translation, and the English Standard Version omits every one of these verses I have up on the screen. And again, I believe it's a problem if just one word is lost from the Scripture. I think it's a bigger problem when entire verses are missing from Scripture. Let me just read out some of them. Matthew 17, 21. Matthew 18, 11. Matthew 23, 14. Mark 7, 16. Mark 9, 44. Mark 9, 46. Mark 11, 26. Mark 15, 28, Luke 17, 36, John 5, 4, Acts 8, 37, Acts 15, 34, Acts 24, 7, Acts 28, 29, Romans 16, 24, and 1 John 5, 7 are completely missing from these versions of the Bible. That is a problem. Now, we will deal with the New King James in just a minute. But there's another problem with modern translations, modern versions. And the problem comes with the footnotes they put in modern versions. Not only do they leave verses out, but if they have a problem with a passage, they never do the honest thing and leave out verses that they do not feel should be in Scripture. Now, if I honestly thought that a, there's a verse in the Bible that shouldn't be in there, Okay, I believed it with all my heart. That verse should not be in there. I wouldn't print a Bible that had it in there. I'd leave it out. Wouldn't that make sense? Now, according to them, they did that. They did that with Acts 8.37. 
They did it with John 5.3. They did it with 1 John 5.7. But when we look in the New King James Version, they leave Matthew 6.13 in there, yet they put in the footnotes, so you will doubt the passage, they put this, the NU text. That is a critical text, the Nestle Allen text. Omits this verse. We know it is, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In the King James Bible, the New King James puts this, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. They put the verse in there, but then they put a footnote in the bottom of the Bible that will tell you on the same page, we don't think that verse should be in there. Now that is a problem because it makes people doubt God's Word. Hey, I don't have to take the verse seriously. Most Bible scholars don't think that verse should be in there. So why do I even need to bother reading it? Why do I need to bother preaching it? Why should I let that verse impact my life? Because if it's just a verse man added, I'm not going to apply it to my life. I'm just going to trust in what is God's Word. Now the King James Bible has that verse in there. Now, I want to tell you, Matthew 6.13 should be in our Bible. The doxology at the end of the Lord's Prayer is not found in the two oldest Bibles in existence today. We've talked about these old Bibles last week. The Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Vaticanus. Both these Bibles date all the way back to the 4th century. They're over 1,600 years old. Very old Bibles. And they are missing that passage of Scripture. Hey, some early church fathers such as Origen and Tertullian omit the doxology in their writing. So they write out the Lord's Prayer, but they leave out that statement. Origen and men like Tertullian are early church fathers. Tertullian lived in the 2nd century. In the 3rd century, uh, Tertullian lived at about the same time. Both of them from North Africa. Why should we believe that it should be in our Bible then? Very simply put, even though it's left out of the two earliest Bibles, the third earliest Bible, and that is the Codex Washington Ensis, I don't know how to pronounce that right, but it's a Bible that you can find in Washington, D.C. That's the reason why it's called Washington Ensis, the third oldest Bible in existence today. It's in their Bible. It dates to the 4th century A.D. John Chrysostom, he was a preacher that um, lived between 347 and 407 A.D., expounded on the doxology in his sermons. We actually have his sermons written out, the sermons he preached. And he preached on this verse. So we know it's an old text, as old as those Bibles that leave it out. Hey, the absence of the doxology in Luke 11, 1 through 4, actually strengthens the authenticity of the doxology. And I want to explain that to you in this way. If someone's just going to add that end phrase to the, the um, prayer, because they thought it should be in there, if they thought the verse, I mean, the prayer would sound cooler if they put that in there, don't you think they would have also added it when, they, when Jesus prayed the prayer in Luke? Wouldn't it make sense to add it there as well? But He didn't. Now why is it missing from Luke, in Luke chapter number 11, but it's in Matthew chapter 6? Here's the simple reason. Jesus prayed a lot of times. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Bible says He went up into a mountain and prayed. Hey, He prayed before He raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus prayed a lot. He was known as much for His praying as He was for His preaching. Amen. He was a man of prayer. And when He prayed, He didn't just repeat the same prayer over and over again. Wouldn't you agree? No. Hey, He's given out a model prayer. 
as He gives out the model prayer, He's not asked that one time. He's asked by the disciples many times. How should we pray? He's not teaching it one time. He's teaching His disciples over and over again how to pray. And since He doesn't have it written out, hey, He gives it one way, then He gives it another way. That's the reason why also in the Gospels, you'll have Jesus give a parable in one Gospel and it will have one store part, uh, one verse in it that's missing from another Gospel. Why? Because Jesus didn't preach the sermon one time and never preach it again. Understand, when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, He didn't fold it up and never preach it again. No, He's like many preachers here today. He takes His sermons and He preaches them again and again. Why? Because everybody needs to hear it. Even the ones that aren't around Him at that time. And when it happens, He adds illustrations, He leaves out illustrations. He makes additions to prayer, He leaves it out. But if someone's just going to add it, it makes no sense to add it to Matthew and leave it out of Luke. But the fact that it's missing in Luke and it's in Matthew gives authenticity to the fact that it was in there. Because somebody who was trying to add it would have added it to both passages. Okay, one more thing. We're talking about Matthew. Is missing from the two oldest Bibles. One of them's called the Codex Sinaiticus, the other one's called the Codex Vaticanus, but we know with both those Bibles, they came from Egypt, the region of Alexandria. That's why we call them Alexandrian texts. And just because it's from Alexandria doesn't make everything from Alexandria bad. I want to first make sure you understand, not everything from Alexandria is a bad thing. Let me give you an example of that. How many of y'all have heard of um, John Mark? He wrote the Gospel of Mark, correct? Y'all have heard of that man, right? Did you know he was the first bishop of Alexandria? The church at Alexandria, first bishop, was the man who wrote one of the Gospels. Hey, how many of y'all have heard of Apollos? Paul talked about Apollos many times. Luke wrote about Apollos in the book of Acts. Where was Apollos from? He was a Jew of Alexandria. So not everything out of Alexandria is a bad thing. I'm not saying because it came out of Alexandria that the city of Alexandria made it bad. Let me show you the reason why we have a problem. We should have a problem with Bibles, though, that came out of Alexandria. Here's Origen, the great Origen, talking about Bibles copied in his city of Alexandria. He wrote this in his commentary on Matthew, the text in question. The differences among the manuscripts of the Gospels have become great, either through the negligence of some copyists or through the perverse audacity of others. They either neglect to check over what they have transcribed, or in the process of checking, they lengthen or shorten as they please. He says either by accident, by negligence, or on purpose, you can't find two copies that agree in the city of Alexandria. People just don't take care to copy them the right way. And guess what? Every critical text that we have comes from this region. Why? Because Egypt is a dry region. Where do we find most of the mummies in the world? Egypt. Why? Because it's a desert climate. Things that are buried in Egypt tend to stay in existence for centuries, if not thousands of years. Everything else in a more humid climate decays. They all come from Alexandria. Origen said in the second century A.D., less than 200 years since Jesus Christ died on the cross, Less than a hundred years since the Bible was completed that you couldn't trust any copies being made in his city. If he said that in the second century, why are we basing our modern versions on those same texts? That should be a problem. Let's look at another one. I love this one. I don't really love it, 
It's just really sad, okay? That's the reason why, what I'm trying to say. Footnotes in modern versions. Mark 16.8. This is what it says in the New Living Translation. The most reliable early manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark end at verse 8. Other manuscripts include various endings to the Gospel. A few include the shorter ending and the longer ending. The majority of the manuscripts include the longer ending immediately after verse 8. Hey, look it up. If you've got a modern version, turn in your modern version to Mark chapter number 16, verse 8. Mark 16, 8. These are the last, we're going to talk about the last 12 verses of Mark. Mark 16, 8. I just want to show you, I don't know if you can see it, but I'm just going to turn my Bible around here. You'll notice right here in the New International Version, between the text right here, there's a gap. In fact, the New International Version, after verse 8, not only leaves a gap, but then it draws a line. And then starts verses 9 through 20. Hey, right here, in the New Living Translation, there's a gap, and then it says the shorter ending of Mark. You ever heard of the shorter ending of Mark? Oh boy, let me read it to you right quick, okay? Shorter ending of Mark. Here's the ending of Mark, the shorter ending. Not the 12 verses. Then they reported all these instructions briefly to Peter and his companions. Afterward, Jesus Himself sent them out from east to west with a sacred and unfailing message of salvation that gives eternal life. Amen. After that, then verse 9 starts. The longer ending of Mark. Now the New American Standard, they just put 9 through 20 in brackets. And then at the bottom, they read a thing similar to the rest of it. It says in ver- here on the, in their notes in the New American Standard Version, later manuscripts add verses 9 through 20. In other words, these fellows do not believe that Mark 16, 9 through 20 should be in the Bible. No big deal, right? Except for many times you'll go into churches and you'll see Mark 16, 15 written above the pulpit. Do you know what it says? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. You ever heard that? Do you realize that most Bible scholars and most modern translators do not believe that verse should be preached on or used because they say it's not part of the Bible? Now, why do we have it then in our King James Bible? Well, they say it shouldn't be in there because some old manuscripts, including Codex Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, leave these verses out or have a shorter ending. When I've read you the shorter ending. By the way, when you hear that late early manuscripts leave it out, I want you to understand, 90%, if not 95% of the time when they say that, they're referring to Codex Vaticanus or Codex Sinaiticus. Because all the other passages of Scripture we have basically in existence earlier than that, they're fragments. They're little shreds of paper that have Scripture written on it. and We've been able to realize that it's part of a verse. But it's not like a whole chapter. It's maybe a verse or two. One side maybe has one verse. Another side has two verses and that's it. So when they say early manuscripts, just keep this in your head. They're saying Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus. They're basing their Bibles on those two books. Hey, the writer of this passage according to them use Greek words that are found nowhere else in the Gospel of Mark. Unique Greek words. So it couldn't have been Mark because he's using other words that he never uses anywhere else in his writings. And then 
Some people believe that these verses, especially verses 16 through 18, teach false doctrine. Brother Wayne talks about the snake handlers of LJ. They get their snake handling doctrine from those verses. They will take up serpents. Some of them used to drink poison. You ever heard of those that would drink the poison? They'll take poison and it won't hurt them. By the way, that does not teach false doctrine. Every one of those things are answered in the book of Acts. For example, the taking up of serpents. Hey, when at, after the shipwreck that Paul was involved in, he gathered up a bunch of sticks to throw them in the fire, and what happened to him? He got bit by a viper. Did he die? No. Why? Because it had said in the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, that his believers would be able to take up serpents and they would not kill them. Hey, vipers bite. Do, they, do you die from an infection or do you die from poisoning? If a poisonous snake bites you. Poison. They'll be able to take poison and it won't affect them. It doesn't teach false doctrine. Let me show you the truth. Hey, the Gospel, the reason why we have it in our Bible is the Gospel could not have ended in verse 8. Brother Blaine, read the, you got Mark 16, 8? Find it for a minute. I'm going to read this other one while you're looking it up. I want you all to hear the last, that verse, Mark 16, 8, and understand why it could not have ended with that verse. Hey, second century writers and works. In other words, when I say second century writers and works, these are people who were discipled by the apostles. Hey, Papias and Irenaeus, both of them personally knew John, the author of the book of John, the writer of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the writer of the book of Revelation, John the Apostle, the one who laid his head upon the breast of Jesus. John, the one Jesus told him to take care of his mother Mary. That John, they were disciples of him. Hey, Papias, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, the Diatessaron, an old book from the second century that a Christian wrote. All of them quote these verses. Hey, but the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Vaticanus leave it out, so let's throw it out of our Bible. Hey, did you ever find verse 8? Hey, good job, speed, speed drills right there. Read the last verse out loud. And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulcher, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said anything to any man, for they were afraid. Hey, did you hear the last words of Mark chapter 16, verse 8? If that's where the Gospel of Mark ended, hey, what does the Gospel mean? Good news? The good news of Mark ends with this phrase, and they were afraid? That's not an ending to, a, to the Gospel. That's not ending to good news. Good news doesn't leave you afraid. That's, right. that's not an ending. So most scholars just say this. Mark wrote the book. He was so excited as he ran out the door to give it to his faithful people, the last piece of that scroll just ripped off. And we lost the last 12 verses. If you believe that, you really don't believe God preserves His Word. No. We should have it in our Bible. Hey, by the way, they said that it was missing from Codex Vaticanus. But if you actually look at Codex Vaticanus in Mark chapter 16, Codex Vaticanus left a full column blank at the end of Mark 16, 8. As if the copyist knew of the ending, but didn't have it with him at the time of his writing. He left it blank. Hey, paper back then, animal skin they wrote on was very expensive. You didn't waste it. If you've seen that old Bible page from the 1200s that I have in the back, you notice how small they wrote. Paper was valuable. You couldn't write big. You had to conserve it. He left valuable real estate in that Bible blank. Why did he do it? 
The idea is he knew of Mark 16, 9 through 20. He left it blank until he could get another copy where he could copy it from. He just never finished it. Hey, talking about Mark using different words, people can use different words at different times. Haven't we developed new words over time? Language changes, right? I remember when I was in college, we had a bunch of Yankees coming down. Sorry guys, but Yankees came down. From Word of Life of all places. Some of y'all been to Word of Life. They came down from Word of Life. And they kept using this word, and I thought it was the most effeminate thing for a man to say. They would see something and they thought it was cool. They would look at the car and I would say, man, that is one cool ride. You know what they would say? Man, that's one sweet ride. And I thought to myself, sweet? Sweet? That's something a girl says. My mom says sweet. I don't say sweet. A man never says sweet. And I used to make fun of them from using stupid words like that. Until one day, as a junior at Tennessee Temple, I see a car go by and I say, man, that's one sweet ride. <laughs> you know what? I started using different words for different things. Just because different words are used does not mean it's a different writer. People can change the words they use over time. I think we all understand that. By the way, I've already said, no verse in Mark chapter 16 teaches false doctrine. People just either misunderstand or twist it to serve their purposes. Keep on going. Footnotes in modern versions. John 7.53 Now, this is what it says in the English Standard Version. It says, some manuscripts do not include John 7.53 through 8.11. This is the story of the woman taken in adultery. Others add the passage here or after John 7.36, or after 21.25, John 21.25. Hey, some of them even added after Luke 21.38 with variations in the text. They said because it's all over the place in these ancient manuscripts, this must not have been a real part of the Bible. They must have added it later. You understand the argument for it. Some old manuscripts don't have this passage, the story of the woman taken in adultery, or place it elsewhere in the Bible. Hey, old lectionaries. That's early Christian sermons to be preached annually. You see, a long time ago, many people were uneducated. They didn't know how to put a sermon together. So they had these things called sermon books that some people even use today. They have sermon books and they'll go through the sermon books. Some people will just take the sermon out and preach it. Have you ever been in a church service and you heard somebody preach something and you said, I could have swore I heard that sermon somewhere else before. I've been there before. I'm not going to say if I've ever done it before, but I've been there before. But back in that day, many of these preachers, they were very busy trying to help people. They would actually, different major churches would actually write out the sermons for the entire year. All the preacher had to do, and some churches still actually do this, just open up the lectionary, find what day of the year it is, read out the sermon. The sermon's already written out for them. There's your message. You don't even have to prepare. Just read it. These old lectionaries, as they're called, have every passage in John, every passage has a sermon on it, but John 7, 53 through 8, 11. So they say because of that, we should leave it out of our Bibles. Why do we have it in the King James Bible? Well, especially in North Africa, which the city of Alexandria is in, Egypt's in North Africa, some early Christians of North Africa actually believed that adultery was such a great sin that Jesus would not have forgiven it. And I agree, by the way, adultery is a terrible thing. I am not lessening how bad adultery is. 
you are not only hurting yourself, you're hurting your spouse. It is a terrible thing. You're hurting your family. It destroys trust that your marriage should be building up between yourselves. It's a terrible thing. Whether you're inside the marriage or you're tearing up a marriage on the outside, adultery is a terrible thing. By the way, it's just as bad as fornication. It's just as bad as pornography. And it's just as bad as homosexuality. We should hear more sermons about it. Wouldn't you agree? Terrible. However, however, Jesus can forgive adultery. Jesus can forgive adultery. All sins fall under the blood of Jesus Christ. He died for all sin, for all mankind, including the terrible sin of adultery. The early Christians in North Africa did not feel that Jesus would have forgiven it. And their attitude was, if we personally believe Jesus wouldn't have forgiven it, then if I read a passage of Scripture that says Jesus did forgive it, it must not have been a real passage of Scripture. Guess what they did? They took it out. And that's the reason why in North Africa, these North African early copies are missing it. Because of that belief. Hey, even though it's not in the lectionaries in many different places, the Scripture is the Scripture reading in lectionaries for the feast day of St. Pelagia. I have no idea who St. Pelagia is. Um, if you know, if you want to know, maybe Brother Mark, since he's from the Catholic um, background, he may know who St. Pelagia is, but I have no clue who St. Pelagia is. But they wrote a sermon for her out of... John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And let me ask you a question. Reading John 8, 1 through 11, the story of the woman taken in adultery, when you read that, does it sound like a made-up story about Jesus? Doesn't it ring true in your spirit that that is something that Jesus would have done? That He did not condemn? After all, Jesus said, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. That's what Jesus taught. No, He didn't come to condemn. He forgave. Even of a great sin like adultery, Jesus was forgiving. It rings true in the heart of every believer. This should be in our Bible, and thus we find it here. Now, they don't believe that should be in the Bible, but they leave it in their Bible. And can I tell you why they, in the end they leave it in their Bible? It's one thing. Money. If you had a Bible that was missing the last 12 verses of Mark. Someone was trying to sell you a Bible that's missing the story of the woman taken in adultery. How many people would honestly buy that Bible? Nobody would. They wouldn't buy it. So in order to keep their sales up, even though they don't think it should be in the Bible, they leave it in. But for their consciences, they'll put them in brackets or they'll put a line in between it. They'll separate it out all to make you doubt that the passage should be adhered to. One more. Footnotes in modern versions. 1 John 5 8. 1 John 5 8, the Nestle Allen and the majority text, including the text that the King James Bible comes out of, most translations leave it out. Now, majority text people believe that what the majority of the texts say is what we hold to in the Bible. However, I want to tell you this just to be honest. Only four or five very late manuscripts contain these words in Greek. Only four or five Greek manuscripts. How many manuscripts, Greek manuscripts, are in existence today? Over 5,000. But only four or five have them today. Now, it's possible that there are more, but the last time I checked, only four or five of them had it. So that should be a problem, right? Why do we have it in our Bible? 
Let me explain it to you. Number one, yes, the oldest Bibles don't have it in there. But Christians who lived before the oldest Bibles were copied quoted it. A man by the name of Cyprian, he died in the year 250. He quoted this before the oldest Bibles we still have are written. In early translations of the Bible also have it, including the Old Latin, the Latin Vulgate, old translations of the Bible. Hey, the Georgian translation, the Ethiopian translation. Hey, the Syriac translation, they all have 1 John 5, 7 in it. And they were all translated before the oldest copies of the Bible we have. Hey, another thing about this verse. In the Bible, every list of three is followed by another list of three or four. What does that mean? i got a question for you. Say it with me, okay? How many days, I mean, how long was Jesus Christ in the grave? Repeat it with me, folks. He was in the grave three days and three nights. Hey, how long was Jonah in the belly of a whale? Say it with me. Three days and three nights. How many of y'all have read in the book of Proverbs, there are three things which the Lord hates. Yea, four are an abomination unto Him. It's a unique thing about the Hebrew Scriptures and, and also with the New Testament, I believe, that every list of three in the Bible is followed by another list of three or four. That's true in every passage of the Bible except according to modern versions, 1 John 5, 7. There are three that bear witness in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. There are three that bear record on earth. In the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. But, if you leave that passage out, 1 John 5, 7, you have a list of three without another list of three. And by the way, also, the Greek in 1 John 5, 8 could have only been explained if there was a 1 John 5, 7 in the passage. And it's hard to understand this, but verb, the word endings in Greek are sometimes masculine, are sometimes feminine, and sometimes neuter. The words that are used for spirit, water, and blood, some of those are neuter or feminine, but they're all masculine in 1 John 5, 7, given a masculine ending, even though they should have a neuter ending, because it makes no sense. In fact, modern scholars say that the Greek of John was bad. And they base his bad Greek in many places because of 1 John 5, 8. But if you have 1 John 5, 7, John doesn't have bad Greek. He actually had good Greek. 1 John 5, 8's Greek makes sense only if you have 1 John 5, 7. One more thing. The Trinity. When we talk about the Trinity, I want you to say this with me. Y'all tell me who's in the Trinity. Repeat it with me. You ready? The Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. That's the Trinity, correct? Let's say it again. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. How many of y'all learned it that way? We grew up learning it that way. By the way, kids in the 1900s learned it that way. Hey, kids in the 1400s learned it that way. Kids in the 1000s learned it that way. However, in the book of John, right here, when they give the Trinity, it's not the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. It's given this way. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. Why did He put the Word in there? What it speaks to is the fact that the person who wrote that out was John. John is the only writer in the New Testament to use the title Word for Jesus Christ. Paul never called Jesus the Word. 
Peter never called Jesus the Word. Mark never called Jesus the Word. James did not call Peter the Word. I mean, Jesus the Word. And Jude did not call Jesus the Word. The only one who did it was John. He uses it in John 1. He uses it in the book of Revelation. And he uses it right here in 1 John. This speaks to not a medieval guy writing out the Trinity. Because if this is just somebody who wrote it a thousand years after the text was given, how would he have written it? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. But instead, they use the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And that speaks to the fact that his, the author of that phrase was John. Alright. Have you ever heard of people who said, I don't like the these and thous in the Bible? Why do we have these or thous in the Bible? In the King James Bible? Well, the first reason is this. They used them way back then. Not very much, but they were still using these and thous in 1611. So they made it into the King James translation. But there's another purpose for these verse, for these uses of these and thous. I don't know if you've realized this, but did you know every place where a thee, a thou, a thine, thyself, and thine are used, that it's always a singular pronoun. It's not talking about talking to or about more than one person. It's always just a singular. When it uses you, your, yours, yourself, so on and so forth, in the King James Bible, it's always in plural. It's talking about more than one person. Let me give you a verse that shows this. John 3, 7, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. Notice how Jesus says this. It says, Marvel not that I said unto thee. When Jesus is giving this verse, how many people is He talking to? One. He's only talking to Nicodemus. He said, Marvel not that I said unto thee, look at the next word, ye must be born again. Hey, He didn't say thou or thee must be born again. He said ye. Why is that? Nicodemus isn't the only person that needs to be born again. Hey, how many people need to be born again? Everybody. So notice, he's only speaking to one person, Nicodemus, but his statement is for everyone. So he says, Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. So yes, you may hate the these and the thous, but they do serve a purpose. When you look in your King James Bible, every time these and thous are used, it's always speaking in singular. That's the reason why when they refer to God, how do they refer to Him? Thou. Thine. Thy. That's who they refer to because there's only one God. Now, some people have a problem with the term Holy Ghost in the Bible. Hey, the Holy Spirit is not a ghost. He's not a deceased person floating around with a white cloak over His head. Going, ooh, and all that stuff. We're getting near Halloween. He's not a ghost. He's a spirit. That sounds so smart, doesn't it? But when a person says that, they're totally ignorant of the English language. You see, ghost is the English form of spirit. In fact, in the 1800s, there were people that liked to have seances and speak to the dead. Have you all ever heard of a seance? About people sitting around a table and trying to speak to the dead? What did they call that? They called it spiritism. Not ghostism. They refer to it as spiritism. Why? Because ghost is the English form of the Latin word spiritus, which we get our English form of the word spirit. Ghost and spirit mean the exact same thing. Some of you who went to college and studied philosophy may have heard this phrase from the old German that English comes out of. Zeitgeist. The spirit of the age is what that means. Geist. 
is the Germanic form of the word spirit. There's nothing wrong with using Holy Ghost. Just because today our words change doesn't mean that's what it meant in 1611. People who were writing in 1611 were not talking about a disembodied dead person. They're referring to a spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. Nothing wrong with using that word. King James. What's wrong with the King James Bible? King James Bible was translated from the Texas Receptus. It was not translated from the exact same text as the Old Testament, but it was from Masoretic text. So I'm not going to give them strikes for the text they used. But I'm going to just show you a few things that should bring some concern. I don't think it's in their Bibles anymore, but if you have an old copy or seen an old copy of a New King James Version Bible, you'll notice the symbol I have an arrow pointing to. They call it a symbol, a Celtic symbol of the Trinity. Three different points. The Trinity right there. Looks really good, except for when you start looking into witchcraft, you'll see the same symbol in witchcraft. This is an album from Led Zeppelin. Never listened to them. I know some of y'all did. Some of y'all may have even had this album. Don't tell me if you did, okay? I don't want to know. But all these symbols are symbols of witchcraft. Do you see the symbol right there? The similarity between the one that's on the New King James Bible? Hey, some of y'all may say, well, that's just a unique thing. How many of y'all watched the TV show Charmed? Don't tell me if you did. What was Charmed about? It was an old show on the WB, I think. And it was about what? Three witches living together, causing all kinds of trouble. That's Charmed. Do you notice that on the symbol at the very beginning of the show, the same symbol you see right there? Now, some of y'all, it's about witches. The symbol of witchcraft. Some of y'all would say, well, look, the symbol on the King James Bible does not have a circle. The Led Zeppelin album had a circle. Charmed had a circle. Okay, let me show you another one. Here's a book called The Craft. Okay, it's hard to see it, but maybe if you look close enough, you can see it. The Craft. This is a witch's book of shadows. So guess what the book's about? Witchcraft. And what symbol's up there? The same one that's on the cover of these old King, New King James Bibles. Brother Jeremy, what are you trying to say? The New King James translators were a bunch of people that wanted witchcraft included in the Bible? No. I want to tell you, I actually knew some of the people that did the translation work on the uh, New King James Bible. I will give testimony that they were soul winners and they were faithful to church. And as far as I can tell from their testimony, they were Christian men. I'm not saying they were trying to bring in witchcraft. However, I will say this. Why didn't they just use a cross? Or if you want to go the charismatic route, fire for a spirit or a dove, nobody would have argued with that. Why did you have to bring in this symbol that's too sim similar to a symbol of witchcraft? What it shows me is a lack of forethought and a lack of care in what they were putting on their Bible. And if they didn't take much thought into what they were putting on their Bible, maybe we should be a little bit more concerned about what they put in their Bible. So let's look at this. The New King James Version, very quickly. Every word of the New King James Version has been checked against the original. In light of increasing knowledge about the Greek and Hebrew languages, notice the last statement here. Nothing has been changed from the King James Bible except to make the original meaning clearer. Do you understand what they're doing here? The only reason why they're making changes to the King James Bible is for what reason? To make it clearer. Sounds reasonable, right? We want our Bible to be clearer, right? Makes sense. Well, let's see how clear, much clearer it is. Very quickly. Ephesians 5.18. The King James Bible reads this. And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, 
but be filled with the Spirit. Is that pretty clear to you? You drink wine to excess, what's going to happen to you? You're going to get drunk. Perfect sense. We'll get the New King James. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. How many of us know what the word dissipation means? Which one's more clear? Good job, Pete. Which one's more clear? He's the first one to do it, so I'm impressed. Got a scholar here, amen. Which one is more clear? Excess. But, the King New King James, the changes were made to make the passage clearer. Let's look at another one. Numbers 21.14 Wherefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, what He did in the Red Sea and in the brooks of Arnon. Pretty clear, right? What were they writing about in the book of the war of the Lord? What? What He did where? In the Red Sea, what He did in the brooks of Arnon. What does the New King James Version read? Therefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, Waheb in Sufa, the brooks of the Arnon. I don't even think Waheb or Sufa are English words. Am I right, Pete? <laughs> if he knew the definition of those words, he's going to get up here and do this course from now on. Those are not even English words. Yet it's given to do what? To make it clearer. Not very clear. Hey, here's a famous passage of the Bible, Matthew 7, 13-14. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be which find it. We talked in the two weeks ago about Hebrew poetry. They don't rhyme words. What do they use? They use parallelism. They will say it one way, and say the same thing another way. Or they'll say one thing one way, and then they will immediately say it the exact opposite way. So what do we see here? Because straight is the gate. What does straight mean? Narrow. And narrow is the way. Do you see the parallelism there? That's poetry. Now look at the New King James Version. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that lead to, leads to destruction. And there are many which go, by, go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And few there be that find it. Now, that may sound fine and good, but i got a question for you. Is salvation difficult for us? Difficult for Jesus Christ. He paid a great price, did He not? But I don't believe in easy believism, but salvation is free, correct? No work, no difficulty. What do you have to do? Put your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now, I don't believe in the salvation that costs something until after you're saved. Your faith will cost something after salvation but it never costs anything to be saved. That's a false teaching right there. It teaches work salvation. That's a problem. Let me show you one more, okay, and then we'll close. 2 Corinthians 2.17. I'm not going to do Isaiah 9.3. We'll do 2 Corinthians 2.17 and we'll close for time. King James says this, For we are not as many which corrupt the Word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God in the sight of God speak we in Christ. The New King James reads this way. Notice the highlighted word. For we are not as many peddling the Word of God, but as of sincerity. But as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. There's a difference between corruption and peddling, correct? Now the New King James says, we got the King James folks here. 
Because I want to tell you this, in the Texas Receptus, the word that's written in the Texas Receptus is the Greek word for peddling. It is. The way the word, if you're translating it straight, it means peddling. So why is it translated as corrupt in the King James Bible? Is this a mistranslation? Did the King James translators make a mistake? Well, I don't believe the King James translators were inspired. Okay? I don't believe that. But I don't believe they made a mistake either. Let me explain to you what's going on here. Paul is using what we would say, he's just using a phrase, okay, a common catchphrase in the ancient world. And many times in the English translation, there are phrases that are used in Hebrew and Greek which don't make sense to us today. And so we had to change it a little bit so we'd understand what they were saying. For example, in the Old Testament in Hebrew, when it said that Moses got angry, sometimes it actually said this, Moses' nose got red. It just meant he got angry, but it was a phrase they used. It's just Hebrew. They said his nose got red. A Hebrew person would understand he was angry. But it might not make sense to us. So guess what? We didn't translate it, Moses' nose got red. We translated it, Moses was angry. Does that make sense? This is how it works here. The King James translators translated it corrupt, not because they didn't know Greek, but because they had a great understanding of Greek. They understood not only how to read the Greek of the King James Bible, hey, but they read the Greek of men like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And many times in ancient Greece, when they would talk about a politician going corrupt, they would say that he had peddled his office. Or maybe we would use this phrase today, the man sold out. What does it mean when you sell out? You corrupted your principles for what? Money, power, fame but you sold out. You had a price. So the New King James in the Greek, yeah, it says that peddle the Word of God. But for somebody living in 1611, hey, that may not have made sense to them. They may have thought these guys are just selling the Word of God on the street. What it meant was they were corrupting the Word of God for money, for power, for wealth, for fame. Whatever it was, they were corrupting the Word of God. So the King James translators corrupted, I mean, translated it well for an English-speaking person to understand it. They translated it as corrupt and not peddling. The King James translation is the supreme translation in the English language. It is the Bible, not for the Spanish, not for the French, not for the Kosovo-speaking people in South Africa. It's the Bible for English-speaking people all over the world. That is why we use the King James Bible. And in closing, as Brother Wayne's coming up, to give an invitation, let me just say this. I hope you're King James. I hope you only use the King James. But if you're just King James only and walk around and know how to say it, yet you never read it, yet you never live it, it doesn't mean a thing that you're King James only. What's more important is this, that we read, study, and apply the Word of God to our daily lives. Don't let this just be a Bible we carry to church on Sunday. Let this be a Bible we use every day. God has given us a Bible. People have bled and died to make sure you could have it in your hands. Don't take this gift of God lightly. Be thankful for the Bible we have. Amen. Brother Wayne.